0: You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force.
1: That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 64 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman, and with me like Lucas' ever-shifting vision for Star Wars, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler!
0: Wait, wait. Ah, Open up a can of whoop-something, because we're going to take a look at Clone Wars Season 5. Season 5.
1: Oh, man. I can't believe we got there so fast. I mean, it it just, it really did fly right by.
0: (laughs) And hey, no need to worry about a season six. Uh.
1: Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions, questions that have bothered you a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we continue our discussion about the smash hit, sometimes controversial TV animated series, The Clone Wars, focusing this time on season five, Google Fall, and what turns out to be the final season of The Clone Wars aired on network television. Consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, fans, and sentients of all galaxies and ages, because here we go.
0: That's right, and I think it's important to note two things that Mark just said there. He said continuing, not concluding, and the last season on network television. We've been told at this point that there are at least two story arcs out there that were being produced for season six. I'm assuming one of them is the Clovis arc, because it was in production and got pushed back. Uh, And one of them, if not the same one, is the one that we got a short clip of with Dave Filoni's announcement video on StarWars.com with what apparently seems like some Order 66 programming kicking in and such. But because there are at least two storylines left, they're naming it bonus content, and we're being told that we someday will get a chance to see it, though whether that's in direct-to-home video form, online, iTunes, uh, bonus content on the Season 5 Blu-ray set and DVD set, we have no idea just yet, but uh the, yeah, the series is getting hit here by the same thing that has caused Disney and the others to step in and say, you know what, all the video games, except for the really casual stuff, those are on hold right now. And oh yeah, Detours, we're going to push it back. And as I just, re- just saw on our parent site, StarWarsReport.com, even the Detours little preview videos and stuff on StarWars.com are now gone. So in this great big sweep, The Clone Wars on Cartoon Network at least, is over, and production of new episodes is over, though the ones that are in production already, they are going to finish, so as I guess, not to waste the time and the money to do it. So, what we got here was a truncated season, 20 episodes instead of 22, but what a 20 episodes they were, minus one story arc, uh, 20 episodes of four episode arcs, five, four episodes, sort of mini Star Wars movies if you watch them together, which I believe last time around we were talking about that being one of the big uh, strengths of Clone Wars when they do those longer arcs. that so They can be sort of mini-movies, right?
1: That is true. I, I really enjoyed them that way, and this one seemed to do the same thing. Grant, we did have a little bit of the, the continuity shift, or not continuity shift, but the, the episode order shift here, with them moving up Revival, as you've mentioned before uh, in our last episode. That threw me off a little bit at first. Plus, uh, I just happened to get the Sith Hunter, so I now know what happened at the end of season four to the beginning of this because that really, I it wasn't adequately explained. I think that was kind of something bothersome for me. I don't like it when shows, you know, do that jump after a season. It's like, you know, here's here's the season episode. We're gonna do the finale, and when we start the new season, a whole bunch of time has jumped past, and you got to kind of figure out where we're at. I never really liked that.
0: Oh man, I'm reading a. Last year, or I guess last summer, or whenever it was, I went on this huge kick to read all the Ultimate Marvel stuff, and I got through the first round of Ultimate Marvel leading up to the big Ultimatum event before they relaunched everything as Ultimate Comics, whatever, instead of just Ultimate Marvel, and had a hard time with the idea of Ultimate Comics Marvel, because not all of them were made available digitally. Some of the ones from the first run weren't digitally. I'm now a subscriber to that Marvel Unlimited thing, which would be cool if... Dark Horse would do it, where you basically pay 60 bucks for a year, so 5 bucks a month, and you have access to thousands of comics. So now I'm getting caught up on that. And I find that after the ultimatum wave and the supposed death of Spider-Man, all of a sudden, the new Spider-Man series, Ultimate Comic Spider-Man, picks up six months later, and he's alive and well, and I'm on issue, like, number 15 or something, and they still haven't explained how he survived. That drives me nuts, which is exactly what the Clone Wars tended to do. They tended to just jump between seasons. I guess we should maybe, um, preface this and about scooting Revival back a little bit. Revival was moved up because they thought it would be a cool season opener. Revival was not meant to be the first episode in the series, though. Revival is meant to be the first episode of the four that bring back Darth Maul and Death Watch and all that. And in it, we have the death of Adigalia. In it, we have the, uh, the base of Honda Onaka already beaten all the crap. And that caused continuity issues later when we saw Adi in Jedi Council scenes later, and we saw uh, Hondo Anaka's place getting beaten up uh, later in the season. So I did check with Jason Fry, who's the guy who is writing that uh, complete episode guide to the Clone Wars, and he has said that, yes, in a chronological perspective, revival is later in the season. It is not the first one of this season. It is right where it was supposed to be at the beginning of that arc. So I guess that makes our first arc to talk about, since we'll talk about the mall one later. The Onderon arc, a war on two fronts, front runners, the soft war, and tipping points.
1: I have to admit, there there seemed to be a lot of excitement for these ones. Oh, they're going to Onderon, what could possibly happen? I was kind of underwhelmed. I mean, it, it was fun ride, but nothing spectacular for me. I really there there were no moments on this that really jumped up, slapped me around, and said, Hey, pay attention to this. Uh, It was a fun little set of stories. Uh, We got to see what was going on on Onderon and all that. But beyond that, though, nothing really jumped out for me.
0: You know, I actually thought that this was a pretty good use of an expanded universe location. When they said they were going to Onderon, I was like, oh, crap. What are they going to do to Onderon now to make it so different from what we saw before that we're going to need a whole bunch of retcons to make it work? Now, fortunately, Onderon really hasn't been seen a whole lot. In the modern EU, or the uh, what's the phrase I'm for, like the classic era or the prequel era EU, it was seen mm-hmm. a ton back in the you know ancient tales of the Jedi era EU stuff, but not in more modern stuff. So things could theoretically have changed, but they managed to give us ISIS I Z I Z the uh, the same capital city we've seen before. They gave us uh, a region. Uh, of the world that we'd seen a little bit of before without major significant changes, or at least not ones that couldn't be explained away by a huge amount of time passing. We got some beast-riding going on. I mean, really the only thing that was missing was we didn't get to see uh, the Duxun moon, or however you're supposed to pronounce that, D-X-U-N moon, um, which would have been kind of cool to see, but it wasn't necessarily something that they needed for the story, so it makes sense for them to leave out any reference to it. So, I thought it worked fairly well. I thought that uh, uh, King Rash, Sanjay Rash, was kind of laughable as a villain. The fact that when a tactical droid shows up, he's just like, yeah, whatever, and takes over operations. Um, I think Dindup did well. Uh, Ramses Dindup being the sort of, not really stoic leader, but a leader who was much more calm and collected, even while a prisoner, than the one who has put himself on the throne and it was a great chance to see uh, the sacrifices of war. It was a great chance to see more of Ahsoka's character as she's taking the lead here. Uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan bow out very early on uh, to see her interact again with Lux Bonteri, which was, of course, built up thanks in part to a friend in need, which gave us that real heavy hint towards romantic feelings between them, but they don't overdo it in this arc; They play it very subtly, which I thought was nice. And we get the Guerreras, uh, where, of course, Stila winds up losing her life. Uh, and you could argue about who it was that was actually at fault. There's enough guilt to go around for her death. You know, who could catch who, who had the opportunity, who actually causes the explosion, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't know. It's not one of the more complex storylines we got. Uh, it's relatively straightforward. But for one that was relatively straightforward and brought in a lot of EU elements as its background, I thought it played out fairly well, and it, it gave us the the indication, I think, that this was going to be a very Ahsoka-focused season, not so much on Obi-Wan and Anakin. We barely see Obi-Wan and Anakin this season. It's almost all Ahsoka in her prime, and for those who've been waiting for her to really stand out as a character for a long time, uh, that was something that was, I think, pretty welcome.
1: Yeah, that was a nice aspect of it. We We saw her doing the training of the militia there and all that. Very good on the character development, the character growth. Uh, you know, you definitely are right on point in the fact that this was nice that the EU did not take a bashing here. I mean, it, it seemed like there was that trend of, well, we can grab and we can use, but who really cares if we make it work? You know, And in this one, it worked. And that's always great when you have that. You're just like, okay, the passage of time was phenomenal. I mean, that for me, I think that was one of the rationales I tried coping with Mandalore you know, well, there's a lot of time, a lot of things could change, you know, and, and that's the beauty about the Star Wars, you know, expanded universe. It's so large. You could have a tail set back in KOTOR and have a planet like Alderaan or something. I mean, granted, Alderaan probably not the best case in this example, but, uh, you know, have a planet get wiped out. And then by the time we see it in Empire Strikes Back, it could be a lush world again because of all the time in between. That is cool how they're able to play with the time in that regard. And... You know, this episode, for what it was, the episodes, I should say, I, I, I found you know, you, you said the the dialing back on Lux and Ahsoka. I, I thought that was kind of shocking because it seemed like there was a big push for more romantic involvement. And then I, I, I thought this was going to be like the, the culmination of all those efforts. And it, I, I don't know the, the subtlety of it. I found it was a little more lacking. I was really expecting them to go somewhere with it. But maybe that was because I was starting to buy into all the shipper hype. I don't know.
0: I think that they wanted us to think that, but instead of it being, you know, the the typical, you know, young romance type story, because she's a Jedi, they are able to play it out here where it becomes a distraction. It becomes something that does affect her emotionally, but she has to choose to ignore it and focus on her duty as a Jedi and such. She, in a way here, though certainly not in nearly as large a form, uh, she's dealing with the same kind of things that Anakin was dealing with back in Attack of the Clones. When being around Padme again, only Ahsoka makes the right choice from the way that the Jedi will look at it, whereas Anakin essentially gives up his duty and winds up following her. She's she's more of a, a rational character, I guess, in some respects, than Anakin tends to be. It reminds me of what was said back in the Mortis trilogy with the older Ahsoka warning her, you know, that following him will lead you towards the dark side. You know, that Anakin's the one that is likely to lead her in the wrong direction, but her own instincts are to go in the right ones. So I thought this was a really good arc for giving us a sense that Ahsoka is a mature character and she's not, you know, pulled uh, in certain directions the way that, say, a a younger Ahsoka might have been, a younger, more impressionable, uh, say, 14-year-old Ahsoka, like when we met her, as opposed to the 16 or so that she is at this point.
1: You know, one of the things I've said uh, at at watching the finale, and I'm noticing now, you know, after watching some of these episodes again before this, was, it's a theme of this entire season that Ahsoka has the strength of character to do a lot of things that Anakin could not, Uh, you know, and that that again is a perfect example. Um, y- You probably dead on that that was exactly why it wasn't as big as I was thinking it probably should have been. And, and in that case, it was a well played episode. I mean, you got to think about those little things. Yeah, the action and stuff, it, it could have been a little more like uh, landing a point rain or carnage of Krell. But for what it was, it worked very well. I, I I think that that alone puts it at a strong eight as an arc. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that could have went against it that didn't. And that speaks well. <laughs>
0: the next arc, of course, is one that led to a lot of controversy back at Celebration 6 when, when it was shown to essentially small family groups. And some were thinking that this might have been meant as a pilot for a new series focusing on even younger characters, though it turned out to just be an arc of Clone Wars, and that's the Young Jedi arc here. We've got the gathering, a test of strength, bound for rescue, and a necessary bond, during which we meet some young Jedi students, uh, younglings about ready to move forward uh, towards, I guess, being able to be chosen as Padawans at some point. We have uh, Petro, Katuni, Biff, Ganodi, Zat, and Jody, my fiancé's absolute favorite character outside of Yoda, because he's so cute, apparently. Gunji the Wookiee, which uh, was kind of a shock, given the fact that it was Lucas himself that said he didn't want any more Wookiee Jedi, which is why they didn't expand uh, beyond Lobaka back in the day. Yeah, that was me almost almost forgetting his
1: uh, Uh, I I figured. It reminds me also of how, you know, the back-off mentality there with so many of these things but you know you mentioned how we got a possibility of a second series here with these with these and, and that was a very big in the fandom i remember Twitter sphere was really blowing up with that that you know this could be it and, and it was funny because it's like okay you got this one you had the first Clone Wars show that kind of dealt with Anakin. Then you had this one that brings in Anakin's Padawan Ahsoka. And everybody's like, oh, this can't end well. So let's have another show about the Padawans that are going to die in Order 66. Because we can get this. I mean, it's like, let's let's just continue to aim kid-friendly shows at events that are going to be very tragic.
0: <laughs> well, you know, kids need trauma early. Um, now, I like the this story arc. I mean, it's not necessarily the uh, the most amazing of the season certainly but we get to see them go through what amounts to sort of a young individuals version of a Jedi trial looking for their individual lightsaber crystals I love the way they show Ilum and the uh, the place they go to get the crystals we get to see them uh, clashing of course with the pirates uh, Hondo Onakos Hondo Onaka's, excuse me I guess it ends in A, uh, Hondo Onaka's band out there, which opens up and answers questions like, "Well, why was his base destroyed when we saw Revival?" Well, because it gets destroyed here. Revival is meant to happen later, and uh, the whole issue of, "Well, what about Slave One? We saw Orusine crash it back uh, a couple seasons ago. Where has it been since then?" Well, aha, here it is. Um, he's the one who has repaired it. So eventually, it must get yeah. back into Boba's hands.
1: I love how how they play that up that he's like the old classic car enthusiast. That he's rebuilding it because it's a classic fire spray. <laughs> he's
0: basically like like uh, like Lucas in a sense here. Um, but I, I also would say that a big highlight for me of this arc was the droid aboard the uh, the Jedi training ship Huyang uh, aboard the Crucible. And Huyang was cool. I mean, he's he's a cool character by himself. You know, kind of this ancient know-it-all kind of a Jedi trainer who's been around for much longer than most of these other Jedi have been. Um, but he's played by David Tennant. And being a Doctor Who fan, uh, <laughs> who is very excited for that 50th anniversary special coming up where presumably we will learn what Doctor Who's real name is and we'll somehow see all 11 Doctors, um I was psyched to see David Tennant here because he's uh, he was amazing as the 10th Doctor and his version of Hamlet, the Royal Shakespeare Company version of Hamlet that Um, They put out on home video where he is Hamlet is incredible. I mean, David Tennant is is someone with a lot of range, and it's another one of those kind of cool things to say. Well, you know, where can we get other cool people from other franchises into the show? And to find that Dave Filoni is a big Doctor Who fan, and he was just as excited, it seems like, to have Tennant there as many Doctor Who fans who are also Star Wars fans were. um, I was I was quite happy to see that. It was very cool to see him be brought into the series.
1: Well, and, and you mentioned that the droid was ancient. Uh, the first thing that I noticed when I saw that droid was how his body structure was very reminiscent to the ancient Sith. And I was like, ooh, is that intentional? Uh, you know, going back to the fact that, you know, if you want to go back as far as the Jedi, you know, before they were Jedi, Sith were part of the Jedi Order and stuff like that. That You know, the, the Sith species weren't always the big bad and that, that this could easily have been a model of based off of the droid species or the uh, Sith species that we see later. I thought that was a really cool use of the of the modeling of the the shape of his head and the way that the the, the little tendrils kind of came down. Totally reminded me of the ancient Sith.
0: Yeah, there was a lot about the design of this particular arc that harkened back to a lot of uh, early Star Wars stuff. Now, granted, they didn't tend to go back, I don't think, into much within, say, Tales of the Jedi or anything with this, though they had with, of course, Onderon for the last arc but some of the symbols that were used and things like that were drawn from the Old Republic, the MMO uh, video game out there that, of course, is set about 3,000-plus years prior to all of this, uh, where there is a war going on between the Republic and the Sith Empire based around the Sith uh, the, from the Great uh, or the Great Hyperspace War, uh, the one that we saw in some of the earliest chronologically of the Tales of the Jedi stuff. So it seems like this was a season in which... In many cases, though not all, as we will see in the final arc, uh, when they do use uh, previously existing EU materials, they use it fairly well and usually in somewhat of a subtle type of way as a setting piece rather than being a major part of a storyline that could wind up getting tossed. Again, except for, of course, the big issue in the final arc.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, another thing I like about this, and it's an aspect of the show that I want to say they subtly add in, especially this season is we see more of the behind-the-scenes of the Jedi. You know, we're, we're watching how they do their construction of the Sabres. Granted, the other Clone Wars series kind of gave us a little bit of that with uh, with Barriss and her master when they went to Ilum before – but I, I really I thought that just them going there and, you know, that the entrance being a little different than what I thought I immediately was like, oh, you know, there could always be multiple entrances. But the way that they played it up with the sun hitting the the ice and the ice melting just long enough for them to get inside uh, them going through their tests, because, you know, you got to keep in mind, this cave has the ability of giving them visions, Um, you know, they're they're. All the Jedi have come here for centuries to get their crystals. One really cool EU fact here. uh, Ferris Olin is the only Jedi that I am aware of that has gone to Ilum and come away with a red lightsaber crystal. A little cool little fun EU fact there. But uh, just that side of it was really cool to see. And then when we see, you know, going onto the ship and you're watching the, the old ancient droid, he's got the arms doing the little reaching around and he's cobbling through. You know, I, I worked at a place where you would go back into the crib is what they called it and you get all your parts and stuff. And that's exactly how it felt. Like he was like the crib master and he's going around and his little arms are pulling out the different parts of the hilts and stuff, getting them everything they need for their construction. I thought that was a really cool aspect of the Jedi Order. You know, just to see that aspect of how they do things was really cool. And they they occasionally do that. I mean, you know, at the end of the season here, we're gonna see a couple of the Jedi funerals, which we've seen a few of those already, but we still see a few more. And and then we also see, you know, later a a, you know, the chamber of judgment, things like that. This season really kind of gives us that back view of the Jedi, which I think is kind of critical by the time we get to the very final arc of this, because it kind of gives you more insight and, and to say that some of the Jedi masters on the council especially are kind of dicks.
0: would that make yoda a tiny you know what never mind um uh, i will say within this um within this arc we do get to see some pretty cool stuff i mean we get to see the 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 lightsabers being essentially put together through the force meditation and such um very much like we see in the force unleashed when star killer is attempting to pull his together before he winds up being interrupted and it winds up flying all into pieces um and granted we get that really sad um Uh, story point of, well, gee, how are these younglings going to wind up making their way into Hondo's camp to rescue Ahsoka, who has pretty much gotten her butt kicked and is now a prisoner. And one of the lowest points for her until we get to see her again uh, in an even worse situation in the the series finale here, the season finale. Um, But the way they get in, of course, they hook up with a traveling circus group and wind up going in as circus Performers That had me groaning, but it's something I could see in Star Wars in general, Uh, and certainly something I could see, you know, in line with, you know, more of the things we saw, like, in the old droids and Ewoks cartoons, so it didn't seem like it was not Star Wars at all, it just felt a little kiddie, but, of course, this is one of the more kiddie-aimed arcs of the show, uh, at least of this season.
1: You know, it seemed like something Hondo would do, I mean, I, I... Again, getting back to the little touches, I love the music and stuff that Hondo always plays. It's like every time you show up at Hondo's base, it, it kind of reminds me of going to like with, with the uh, Rebellion area. Anytime you go to Talon Card's place, you know, it's like this is the smuggler you want to be hanging out with. You know, he's no job of the hut. You don't have to worry about getting slime on your shoes. This guy, he's all about providing some drinks, a good time, some entertainment.
0: <laughs> then we got the arc that was the big groaner, I guess, of the season, or at least included the episode that was the groaner of the season, and that is the so-called Droid or D-Squad arc. We have Secret Weapons, A Sunny Day in the Void, Missing in Action, and Point of No Return. The first part of which is a R2-D2, QTKT, kt not R2-KT here, to notice here, M5-BZ, or BZ-U9-C4, and the pit droid WAC-47, going on a mission under the frog-like colonel Mieber Gascon, who's trying to essentially prove himself, and they're going after, essentially, uh, a device that would allow them to decode or decrypt enemy transmissions. And the first episode, Secret Weapons, is based around that. Um, But then, of course, they wind up finding themselves crashing down on a planet uh, known at times as The Void, in the episode, A Sunny Day in the Void, which is ridiculously horrible on the planet Abafar, where they're essentially walking around the entire time, and it's, it's really playing up this whole idea of suicide being the answer, you know, oh, woe is me, I should die, kind of stuff. Um, they finally do wind up meeting, uh, someone in one of the towns, uh, Pons Aura. They wind up meeting an, essentially an amnesiac, uh, clone commando, a Republic commando, by the name of Gregor, who then helps them get away, and then we get the fourth episode, Point of No Return, where they wind up getting away to a Venator-class Star Destroyer up above the planet, only to find that it's not actually what they think it is. It's apparently been captured, it's filled with droids, it's set to explode, as being sent to a space station in the Carida system, where, among others, Obi-Wan and Anakin are for this big conference-type thing that's going on. So... It's it's an odd arc in that each episode kind of has its own story, but they do all link together into one broader arc. Again, very much like what we'd see with the old storylines in the droids cartoon series back in the day. Um, But, I don't know. This is one where I liked the first episode. It was kind of bumbling, but I liked the first episode. Um, It was amusing at times. Uh, The episode with Gregor was good, but they really did not use that Republic Commando in the way that I would have expected. I mean, they, they they play it up a lot in the previews only for him to only be in it for one episode and only very briefly and not really even remembering who he was. Um, and I like the idea of sort of the suicide attack um, ship in the fourth part and how they're able to stop it with, with uh, R2-D2 getting severely damaged from it saving the day and, and Anakin really being freaked out about trying to find R2, who he's almost lost before. Um, but it's that sunny day in the void that second episode that really kills me. It was an episode that was not needed. They wanted to do some artistic experimentation. Apparently, while they were sitting around the table talking about it, um, none of the other writers was willing to do it. They all were like, whoa, not a chance. And Brent Freeman was the only one to stand up and ask of it and, uh, and say, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, I think it's telling. That when you watch the -the behind-the-scenes videos with Dave Filoni, the Clone Wars download on StarWars.com, that for every single episode, the person talking about the episode is Dave Filoni, except this one. It's like Filoni didn't even have anything good to say about it, so he was going to let Friedman be the one to talk about it and explain what the hell was going on. Um, I would say "Sunday in the Void" is one of the worst episodes this series has ever seen, and it drags down what was sort of an okay arc into that realm of the bad arcs of the series, unfortunately, because it certainly had a lot more potential with the droids and with Gregor, the Republic Commando, than it wound up living up to.
1: Well, and did Gregor show up in Sunny Day in the Void, or did he show up in Missing in Action? I, I can't remember when he showed up.
0: He shows up in Missing in Action, because they find the city at the end of a Sunny Day in the Void, and you don't even get the sense that there's anybody in the city. It feels like a ghost town, and then you get to Missing in Action. It's like, oh, I guess there are people living here, including a Celestin punk named
1: Borkus. Yeah. See, and that, that for me, it, it, it like this arc almost felt like an EU book in the aspect of it's one big adventure of many adventures that just happened to coincidentally all line up for the bigger one. And yeah, Sunny Day in the Void was definitely the one where, you know, you could have cut that one out. It almost felt like there was two stories that they wanted to tell in bigger arcs, but they were like, Well, one of these just doesn't quite have enough to do it. Let's put this with the droid, the D squad one. I like the D squad aspect of it. I really thought that was fun. You know, seeing, uh, Gascon inside the what was an R4 droid or an R5 droid? I I thought it was pretty cool, you know, seeing him inside it, doing the little thing and and watching it all come around. And he was a fun little character. And and the fact that, you know, I I think there was like a whole theme of it. Didn't matter what size you were, you know, you could contribute to the war effort. That was a cool little theme and stuff. But this was mainly another R2 story. So anytime I watch a story where R2 is kind of the centric character, I try to be less critical on it. And so I think that that's why when I watched these, like I didn't see them as bad as some of the reactions I was seeing on the Twitter sphere and then fandom. I mean, a lot of people, especially the sunny day and the void, they really hated it. You know, it was like a venomous reaction it was like, what is this? I want the good stuff, you know, get back to revival. I could see why they would put revival forward though. when you got this because that could, you know, this was a definite slower arc. And if you were someone like me that when they got to the Onderon on one, you were like, meh, you've just sat through four ep- or four arcs. Four arcs. you just have through two episodes eight you just sat through two arcs eight episodes of eh. and that could be enough to make you say i am ready to step off the clone wars so i mean i could see why they would move revival up in that regard
0: oh yeah there were plenty of people saying that they were they were done with it we uh with republic forces radio network which is funny because you know we have reviewed the droids cartoon series and we're going to review the Ewok series in the near future before the the show officially wraps up. But um, uh, even having seen those, I mean, we were going nuts over how god-awful A Sunny Day in the Void was and how it really, it harkened back to some of the worst of Star Wars animation. It just really was not an episode that needed to be told. What little bit was in there, you could have told in, you know, five minutes of another episode. They land on the planet and they walked a lot. The end. Um... What gets me about Gascon, he's an interesting character, and he would be more interesting if he was consistent. He goes from, droids all suck, droids are just mechanicals, you're just mechs, to thinking, you know, droids can have some value after all. And the very next episode, he's back to bashing them again. And has to learn the lesson over and over and over again. It's, it, maybe it's consistent with the inconsistency of sort of human nature, but it's inconsistent from episode to episode and really gets annoying. Uh, it got to a point with Sunny Day in the Void where when he starts talking about suicide, I think all of us sitting around, all of us, uh, the Republic Forces team, sitting around watching this episode and probably plenty of other fans out there were thinking the same thing. Oh, for the love of God, just kill yourself already and save us from having to watch your character anymore. It's pretty bad to have an episode where you have a character who's thinking of suicide and thinking of killing himself, and instead of engendering enough in the audience to go, no, don't do that, there's still hope, to have the audience say, oh, God, please kill this little frog. <laughs> well, one of the droids, just tip
1: over on him already. Exactly, uh, you
0: know if, it, if it worked back in in the previous season's droids episodes, why not?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, and another aspect of this that I liked was the pit droid. I believe it was Whack. uh that droid was fun. I mean, when I remember when I first watched the first one, uh, I think it was secret weapons. I I remember thinking like this droid is what they should have done with Jar Jar. Like this is Jar Jar done. Right. You know, it was just the right aspect of humor. And yet just cool enough that you're like, I like this guy.
0: And I will say that while it was odd that he would just randomly disobey orders, if he's supposed to be a droid following orders, um, it did give me a bit more of an appreciation for something done in The Last Jedi. Uh, minor spoiler here. In The Last Jedi, the the sort of quasi-Book 4 in Coruscant Nights, I-5, the sentient droid, uh, the sentient droid with apparently a Force signature and all that.
1: Um, yeah, the disposed leader of uh, the old droid planet from KOTOR 2. <laughs> he winds up
0: basically having um, uh, multiple bodies. He's able to essentially switch out his memory core and all that, his personality core or whatever, between several different bodies. It's modular now. And one of his bodies is a pit droid. And that, I think, ga- seeing Whack here gave me much more of an appreciation for what they were trying to do with i5. Because we hadn't really seen pit droids in serious action in the films. They were always doing yeah. the weird slapstick, three, you know, three stooges kind of stuff. But at least in this episode, We get a little bit more of a serious pit droid, so I could picture I-5 better. Of course, the next arc, that's the arc that we were really waiting for, and we were so excited for it that they decided to move one of the episodes up in episode order. Uh, It is Revival, Eminence, Shades of Reason, and The Lawless, also known for those who picked up the adaptation by Jason Fry, Darth Maul, Shadow Conspiracy. Um, What we have here, of course, is the return of Darth Maul and Savage Opress, after having seen them last in the season finale of season four, uh, the Sith Hunters, as Mark mentioned earlier on in the episode, was, of course, the bridge that tells us, you know, how do they get a new ship and get away? How is it that uh, Obi-Wan gets Asajj, uh to land and then she takes off, as opposed to sticking around with them and so on and so on? In Revival, we get to see Maul and Savage going up against pirates, among others, wind up fighting against Obi-Wan, fighting against Adi Gallia who winds up getting killed, so goodbye to that from Obsession, along with, you know, everything about Asajj from Obsession, if that story is even in continuity at all anymore at this point. We see uh, grievous wounds, uh, no pun intended, being inflicted upon Maul and Savage, so they're going to need some medical attention in the near future, and of course then they take off. Uh, And this is where we see Hondo's base damaged uh, because of the events back in the Young Jedi arc. We then pick up with imminence in which they decide uh, that they are going to essentially build themselves an army of sorts, build themselves a massive army within the criminal element to be able to uh, essentially stand up against outside forces, the Republic, the Sith, whoever, so they can eventually get their revenge against Obi-Wan, the Jedi, uh, Sidious, this Sith pretender, Dooku, etc., etc. So we see them go after... The, uh, they wind up uh, getting the Pike Syndicate to join with them. They go and uh, join up with Death Watch, or I guess Death Watch finds them, and they manage to hook up with Death Watch, which of course brings Pre back into into play. Here, um, we wind up seeing them get their new cybernetic parts. They eventually wind up going and also jo- getting the resources of the Hut Clans. They go and wind up getting uh, the help of Black Sun, which quacked us up. I believe it was something that was cut. From a public forces when we covered this episode, uh, Barrett was on the call. And the joke was, uh, whenever they say, you know, whenever they're making their threats, the Black Sun guy says, we're Black Sun! You know, kind of a, how dare you do us? Don't you know who we are? Uh, but his way of putting it was, we're Black Sun! Which just cracked up everybody else who <laughs> so was on the call. Uh, of course, once they get together with these groups, they form their so-called shadow conspiracy or shadow collective. Uh, go and take back over Mandalore, deposing Satine Cries, who's been there uh, for a while, and it is her predicament that eventually, winds up bringing in Obi-Wan. We see Maul take down Pre We see the Night Owls go their separate ways, and we see, finally, in The Lawless, a massive battle for Mandalore that leads to Darth Sidious entering the fray, battling against Savage and Maul, taking out Savage, taking Maul, essentially, as prisoner with his fate, basically unknown. Uh, this really was a jam-packed arc, and the heroes themselves don't win, per se, so much as it's the one where a lot of characters die. Uh, the situation on Mandalore is thrown into enough chaos that they can then say that, you know, things maybe get back to normal. Of course, in The Last Jedi, it's Black Sun that's running the place. It's Shizor that's running Mandalore um, by that point, taking advantage of this chaos and whatnot. But it really it tied up a lot of loose ends, cleared the decks of a lot of characters and situations that uh, could could make you say that, well, maybe this series really was wrapping up. It had ramped up. Now maybe it's wrapping up. Uh, I would say this is one of the uh, the three single best arcs that this series has ever seen. I would say the Umbera arc was one of them from last season. There, of course, is this arc, and there's the finale arc, uh, focusing on Ahsoka that we're about to see. This was an amazing set of episodes, and this would have been really cool to see in a theatrical release.
1: Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Uh, the only other arc I would throw in there is Landing at Point Rain. Um those, those are my four favorite arcs. Um, this one, I, I, it, again, it gets back to that aspect of, of why move revival. I mean, I understand their reasoning behind it, but in... The age of George Lucas, the fact that we will still let these type of decisions come down to the ratings aspect. It's like, man, I cannot handle that because it's like, don't, don't judge anything by ratings because not everybody watches TV the same day. I mean, come on, you know, that really ticks me off. And this episode, you know, you have to now watch it in the right order, which is in the arc, which is out of order the way it was produced because that's the best way to get the most out of it. Um, you know, you mentioned how obsession is probably tossed. I, I have to actually agree with you. I, I originally I didn't think that was going to be the case, but more so now, I think that that dividing line of how obsession can't fit with this Clone Wars, but it could with the old Clone Wars comes to that that divide that, you know, we've been talking about how they really need to split the continuity in that regard and that this one should go with the movie canon. And the old one go with the EU cannon. And then if they can take anything from the Clone Wars and fit them together, maybe they go that route. Um, Adigalia, when she died, I remember, see, I was watching this on my phone at the time and it was kind of glitching. And I remember it looked like all that had happened was Savage Press kind of shouldered her and she fell to the ground. I remember thinking like, you know, why is everybody freaking out? And then I watched it again on the computer and I was like, Oh, 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 he like kind of like stabs her with his forehead horns at the same time and kind of impales her. It's like, Oh, okay. But you know, it's literally that half a second that I missed. I totally was like, what is everybody talking about? I was so lost as to why everyone was flipping out, but you watch these in order and it really plays out. I love the aspect of when Savage and Maul get picked up by the Mandalorians and how the shuttle's kind of floating there. And you're just like, Whoa, you know, that that's, it's, all cold and frozen, but it gets to that point where I, I question the shuttle that we see them picked up in. Is that not the one that we saw from the fifth season or the fourth seasons finale? And then can the Sith hunters even happen?
0: You know, well, we saw them though, escape in a ship back in revival. So it's the ship from revival that they get found in. It's not the ship from revenge ah, that they get okay. found in though. Again, that's another one of these. Well, It'd be much clearer if they had kept revival in their same place. Because the way it looks, and thank goodness they decided that they were going to move it back chronologically, that it was, this was going to be the exception to the after the time jump everything is airing in order stuff. Because otherwise they would have been out there floating in space for what, months? While those other arcs, those other three arcs were all taking place. Fortunately now they're saying, you know, it's a much shorter period of time. But I mean, this, this really had everything you could expect. We have the tragic death of Satine and its effect on Obi-Wan in a great, great scene that I think is meant to mirror, at least in part, the death of a different Satine in the hands of a different Ewan McGregor um, in uh, Moulin Rouge. We get to see this awesome <laughs> knock-down, drag-out battle, my favorite battle of the series thus far, uh, or I guess at all, unless we see something cool in those bonus content ones, uh, between Maul and Pre-Visla, which is much better in my opinion, than the one between Savage and Maul versus Sidious. That was kind of a letdown after having seen the really cool one where really? we see Pre using all kinds of different weapons against Maul, everything in his arsenal, as opposed to it being essentially just a lightsaber fight. Uh, we see Pre of course, meet his end. We see Bo-Katan taking up arms to protect uh, Mandalore from the Sith or from the Night Brothers, whatever you want to call them. Um, with her, of course... Uh, being revealed to be the sister of Satine, which was kind of a shock. We get to see some of the characters back from Corruption in the Academy helping out Satine when she is trying to escape. We get to see Obi-Wan in Mandalorian armor kicking butt. Um, I mean, there's just so much packed into this. We see the death of, I believe it was Aruba the Hutt. Um, we see the, the the bounty hunters like Imbo and Latsrazi come back briefly to fight. We see the great line From Maul, you know, when Aruba tells him he's on Tatooine, he's like, yeah. Okay, so you're telling me that Jabba the Hutt is at Jabba's palace. Yeah, you're still dead. You know, like, thank you for telling me the obvious captain um, kind of thing. And just everything about this arc screams, this is what this series could have been. This is what this series has been building up towards. And this is the kind of stories they could have been telling. Instead, we get some really cool, somewhat dark stories like this that really fit the Clone Wars and the 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 epic scope and the epic feel of Star Wars. And then we get a Sunny Day in the Void. We get uh, Mercy Mission. You know, we get these little oddball episodes from here and there that just don't work. You know, in the grand scope of things, though, it does go back to the idea that the Clone Wars kind of has an identity crisis. They don't know if they oh, want to be a show for adult Star Wars fans or if they want to be a show for kids. And this certainly was not one that fit the uh, the show for kids stuff, though it certainly knocks a lot of characters, as I said, out of the way and, and clears the decks. So but we'll get to that. We can maybe wrap up after our, the last arc and going back to that, who will fall and see just what the situation is for all the ones they had suggested uh, might.
1: You know, one thing about Lawless that really upset me was they never named who the Mandalorian had the armor that mirrored Maul's horns. I originally thought that was Maul. In Mandalorian armor, but then when the episode plays out, it's kind of like a, a the next in line of the Death Watch. That the whole aspect of when Maul took over and they the Death Watch started wearing the red, that division would have been cool if we saw something like that more taken place. All we really got is when when Pre Vizsla dies, the Mandalorians around him kind of drop to their knee and do the typical "Our oh, Mandalore is dead. You're now the new Mandalore." And Bo Katan is just like, uh, uh-uh, uh, she ain't having that, which, you know, makes sense. But that side of things, I wish they kind of would have gave us more or had planned to give us some books or something to kind of flesh that out. I was really enjoying that. Uh, you know, and then when we get to the scene where, you know, Bo Katan's helping Obi-Wan escape and that's when he says, you know, you're her sister, that was, that was a very powerful, you know, moment. And there were a lot of very powerful moments in this. I mean, you know, when Satine dies, There's the aspect of me, you know, the EU fan that was kind of like, nothing was destroyed. Yes, everything is right with the world. And we see Mandalore in the Civil War. It's like, you know, all these things about these plots that could have gone wrong for the EU didn't. And they resolved themselves in a way that what we've always seen could still have happened. And I I liked that the most because I was really, I think of of all the times that, that the EU elements got taken and messed with, The Mandalorians was the one I was the most trepidatious about. I was like, you know, they could really change how I see, you know, the Klingons of Star Wars. And a while there, I was like, great, they turned the Klingons into Vulcans. You know, and now we're seeing, oh, wait, wait, maybe now they're Romulans. I don't even know, but but it's still, it's cool. They're an action-packed warrior cast again, and I love that.
0: And they even gave us somewhat of a connection to the early, early background. That we got of Boba Fett, uh, including in the Marvel series, where they refer to these Mandalorian warriors, not just as Mandalorians, but as Mandalorian super commandos. Because that's the name that they give here to the Red Death Watch members. They call them Mandalorian super commandos, with the one with the horns being the Mandalorian super commando captain. And I was pretty psyched to see that. I mean, the fact that we get essentially uh, just some terminology that helps bridge those together. Yeah. But when you talk about wrapping up continuity issues, uh, uh, taking the Death Watch out of play, uh, leading Mandalore to perhaps being able to be kind of like we see in other EU materials so that maybe it can all still work, it's not as big of an issue as there was before, especially now that they've got the true Mandalorian and the, and the whole thing kind of worked out with that, thanks to the Essential Atlas and other sources. There is one big thing, of course, about the Clone Wars that is, had, had yet to be reconciled, and that is Ahsoka Tano. We begin the series, at least in film form, not necessarily chronologically, because there are those two episodes taking place before it, with the events on Christophsis and the introduction of Ahsoka, and finally in season five, we get her leaving, in a sense. It makes for a great coda to finally wrap up the series with her sort of walking off into the sunset, though, you know, apparently following Filoni's Decision that she should live, as opposed to George Lucas's preferred ending where she would have to have died, according to something that Filoni put on StarWars.com. But we get Sabotage, The Jedi Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Jedi, and The Wrong Jedi. Focusing on, first, a, a a, 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 not really Sabotage, I'm not sure Sabotage is the right word for it, unless they were just going for the, Sabotage, like the Beastie Boys reference.
1: I think they were sabotaging the Jedi's... You know, the Jedi's look to the galaxy, their, their perception.
0: I guess, but it's it's you've got essentially what amounts to sort of an, an unintended suicide bombing that takes place uh, from a man who, who was fed a bunch of nanodroids who blows up. You get a lot of deaths, uh, apparently uh, six deaths, because you only have six coffin things in a little uh, uh, area for Jedi funerals and whatnot. Um, but the, uh, the bombing happens, and Anakin and Ahsoka are investigating this bombing. They find the bomber, uh, but it all seems to be a setup as the bomber is used to bring in Ahsoka. Uh, the bomber is killed, that is used to pin the murder on Ahsoka. We see Ahsoka being arrested, then eventually escaping, thinking she's a, she's escaping with Anakin's help, though really it's not, uh, with some great fugitive-style moments in it. She then investigates the bombing on her own, uh, then finds herself in need of help, winds up hooking up with, of all people, the rather changed since we first saw her Asajj Ventress, uh, only to wind up having to fight against someone who is posing as Ventress, who's the actual mastermind behind the plot. Uh, she gets arrested again, taken in. uh, She is kicked out of the Jedi Order, put on trial for this bombing. Uh, Anakin has to go out and find the real proof, and winds up discovering that of all people, the person who is the true traitor within the Jedi Order, who has set up Ahsoka, her own friend, is Barriss Offee. And uh Barriss, at this point, is disillusioned with the Jedi. She believes the Jedi only are doing things through violence now that they've sort of lost their way, which is somewhat true um, from a certain point of view. Um, But eventually we wind up finding that Ahsoka's name is cleared, but Barriss's accusations, the fact that the Jedi, uh, by playing politics and worrying about the perceptions of the citizens around them, essentially abandon her, she is not willing or ready to come back to the Jedi Order at this point. We get that great touching scene between her and Anakin at the end, in which, uh, in probably one of the best moments of the entire series, uh, Anakin makes the comment that, you know, more than anyone, he also knows what it's like to want to leave the Order, at which point Ahsoka simply says, I know, recognizing that she does realize that Anakin and Padme are together, or at least love each other, that, that she's not as dense as everyone made her out to be, that somehow she didn't notice this. She knew. She was keeping it to herself, and perhaps she will always keep it to herself. Um, it was an amazing, amazing arc, uh, orchestral music added into it for the first time. I mean, everything about this arc played out well, although there are still, of course, unanswered questions, like why didn't they look at the freaking camera footage to figure out what really went on? Uh, was Palpatine behind any of the setup here, or was he just taking advantage of the manipulation that Barris was already pulling and such? Um, continuity issues, potentially, with Barris, and we can get to that in a moment, but, um, it, if this is where the series ends, it ended with a phenomenal bang in this arc and the one that preceded it.
1: You know, I, I had said uh when I when I got to the end of this arc and and the end of the season, that this had a more satisfactory conclusion than Star Wars Invasion ever had. And they ended Invasion saying, hey, eh, this is a satisfactory ending, we're done. So when we got to that orchestra and the way it ended and it wasn't the regular, you know, it was all solemn. It was orchestra. I mean, it was moving this whole arc had, I, I watched them all individually. And then I sat down with my daughter and watched them. Uh, you know, she's 10 and you know, I admit I cried. Uh, I, I cried watching, you know, the wrong Jedi, at least twice. Uh, when Ahsoka first got kicked out of the order, I was like, are you really going to cry over this show? And then at the end, when, you know, they're offering to take her back and she says, no, I, at that point, I was just like, yeah, this, well, obviously you're crying over this show. This is freaking sad. And, you know, it, it's funny though, in, in one aspect about how like, I love the Tarkin angle, you know, Tarkin's work in the, uh, the, the, public point of view of we want to, we want justice, you know, I, at the beginning one and it, Ahsoka comes back to do the, investigations and yet they're so quick to just go with what Tarkin says and kick her out of the Jedi orders so she could face a fair trial. That to me screamed wrong on the Jedi orders part. It's like, you know, if you want Ahsoka to stand trial, you let her stand as a Jedi. She did the acts as a Jedi. You don't kick her out of the order so the Jedi can save face. That really, really pissed me off. And I think that, you know, as I said earlier about how you can see that the, the council members are kind of dicks, you really see that at the end of this episode when Mace pulls the, well, we realize that all this was actually your your trials and that by going through this, you'll be a stronger Jedi than anyone before. And I'm too faced about this because on one hand, I just want to call him out for being just a jerk. And on the other hand, he's got a point. You know, the Force does work in mysterious ways and as asinine as it is to hear him, of all people, say it, He's right. This was her test. This does prove she's a bigger Jedi. And unfortunately, in that regard, she failed because she turned and let her emotions carry her away as she walks away from the Order. I don't necessarily think her walking away was the wrong thing to do. I think it proves a a strength of character that even Anakin didn't have. But from the Jedi standpoint and of a trial, I do think she failed the trial. She didn't deserve to be a Jedi. Although I do think she has more of what it takes to be it. And I think this gets back to the Palpatine, the Sith trap, you know, Barriss's point at the end when she goes on camera and, and, and talks about how the Jedi are, are, are fueling the dark side or feeding it. They're soldiers for the dark side. She's hundred percent correct. And it's also interesting too, that when she goes up there, they don't bother to kick her out of the Jedi order first. They let her stand trial as a Jedi. Again, going back to the, the lack of faith that they had in Ahsoka. You know, Ahsoka was out at Kato Neimoidia. Why would she suddenly involve herself in all of this stuff? You know, she's been doing everything out of her power. I mean, the fact that less Jedi tried to defend her character goes into the aspect of how everything was clouded. And they even mentioned this, you know, and Yoda mentions that, you know, everyone's clouded, kind of like, Oh, don't take it all on yourself because she's trying to explain it in the Ahsoka Tano in the Chamber of Secrets, you know, the Chamber of Judgment aspect. You know, there were some really cool aspects. You know, I, I mentioned that seeing the background of the Jedi there. When she's in the chamber, I mean, the whole, the way the resonating, the, uh, the echoing when Yoda's talking, I mean, everything about that room seems sinister. We see the Jedi uh, guards with their dual-bladed yellow lightsabers and their cool-looking masks. And I was thinking to myself, why would they have those masks? But the more I think about it, I'm like, that does make sense. You know, in the old uh, Clone Wars comics, we see Obi-Wan get captured by Asajj Ventress and she puts a Sith torture mask on him. You know, this mask, these masks could be ways to stop, you know, uh, uh, Jedi mind tricks or something like that. What a perfect way if you're going to put a Jedi on trial to have a bailiff, you know, <laughs> give him a mask or something like that. There were a lot of these really cool aspects that we see, but that doesn't even touch the graphics. You know the the graphics when we see Anna can go to to Barris's room to confront her, the blue in her eyes, the depth in her eyes. I mean, I, I I jokingly said how I fell in love with her all all in like five minutes to to hate her and to to have my heart broke by the fact that you know she's no longer how she was in the EU. You know all these aspects of it. When that fight goes down, though, and they're outside the temple after she busts out her her window and goes running across the top ledge of the temple, and you see the old master, uh, uh, Tamur or whatever his name was, and he's training a bunch of the younglings, and they're down there. Anakin drops down, and they're down there, and the the four Jedi... Or the uh, guardmen come around, but they don't engage her. They're kind of like, oh, Master Skywalker's got this. And all those little Padawans are watching Anakin as he's dual blading. You know, he's got his blade. He's got Barriss's blade. Barriss has got the two blades of Visages, and they're going to town. And all these Padawans are watching Anakin, the hero of the Republic, the hero of the Clone Wars, battling a traitor Jedi just in an epic battle. And then I was telling my kids, I'm like, now think about this. In a couple months, these kids are going to be stuck in a room with him, knowing exactly the kind of skills that this man has and knowing that they have nothing, not even their training lightsabers. Well, they barely have training lightsabers and he's coming at them with a real lightsaber. How tragic is that? That these guys know exactly the skill level this guy has. They've seen it in action and are about to be trapped in a room with him months later. There's so many aspects to these episodes that were just so much fun and they got me pondering all these other things. And, you know, I've talked about how landing at, at Point Rain was a favorite episode, the Carnage of Krell, the Lawless. This one blew them all out the water. Uh, and yet the aspect of Barris and the fact that they decided to change her backstory and alter the EU aspects of what we knew was enough to keep it from being my all time favorite. I still give it to Lawless because at least with Lawless at the end of that, we have Palpatine. He's, he's over Mount Mal- Darth Maul and he says, I have other plans for you. You know, it, we don't even know what happens there, but they didn't leave it in a way where I'm like, wait, what happens to this story in that book? And what they did with Barris leaves me wondering, okay, what happens with MedStar? What happens with, with uh the, the you know, episode three comic novelization where we see her on Kashyyyk, you know, all these aspects of it, you know, I could see MedStar if that took place before playing into her, her, Decision to do what she's done, her anger because she's seen, you know, the, the wasted lives of the clones and all that being in the rim shoes, working as a surgeon in the backgrounds as a Jedi healer, that would work. But I don't see that working. I I, I mean, I I've I've seen that that the Wikipedia they've already tried retconning it by saying that she's going to be reaccepted into the order. But I I just don't see how that works.
0: Lies, and, all lies. I can tell yeah. you what I can tell you what Leland Chee says about it, and that. Sure ain't it, Wikipedia. What they've said, basically, with uh, the whole issue, and and this is what Leland uh, and I have talked about. Uh, He's made some comments to a similar effect on, for instance, his Facebook page and reply to people and whatnot. But what you basically have for Barris, there's three main things that are up in the air. You've got the MedStar books, which, of course, also has that short story intermezzo in between them. But the MedStar books which have her on her own on a mission, which eventually ends with her being knighted because of her experiences there, which generally took place, you know, about two years after Attack of the Clones, about one year before Revenge of the Sith, but we know that all that stuff's going to be shuffled around anyway, so we can't really take much out of that other than simply the fact that sometime during the wars, we've got her becoming a knight, and that is necessary because certain elements of that story play into *Coruscant Nights*. I mean, the whole Vader having the bad trip with the Boda that somehow spoiled after a matter of years instead of a matter of decades, because uh, uh, Michael Reeves got the dates all screwed up in *Coruscant Nights*. That whole fiasco relies on the whole Boda thing from uh, from the *Med Star* books. But so you get that. You also have the fact that in the *Reversal of Fortune* web strip that leads into the *Evasive Action* web strips, she is a knight who is the master of a padawan named Zonder who's one of the main characters of that series, and we see her get killed during Order 66 in Reversal of Fortune, very much like we see her get killed during Order 66 in the comic adaptation of Revenge of the Sith. So there's the av- the aspect of her death, the effect on the comic strip, and the whole issue with, um, uh, with what we saw with the MedStar books. And sort of, you could say, things like The Approaching Storm may have an issue uh, when it comes to her age. One big issue is that in the cartoon series, they portray Barriss as if she is a contemporary of Ahsoka's, not a contemporary of Anakin's. Uh, they haven't said for sure what her age is or if it is a new age, if she has been made to be younger. If she is significantly younger, then yes, some of her other appearances and such, like we saw with um, The Approaching Storm, would have to be tossed out or retconned or somehow switched around. But there's nothing to say that she isn't still a Padawan and spending time with Ahsoka because even in the mainstream EU version of the Clone Wars she was still a padawan albeit an older padawan all the way up until the Med Star books so to have her be a padawan right alongside Ahsoka makes sense maybe she's just a little more diminutive in size than we had expected of the character we also have this issue out there of well what about her being a knight uh, uh doesn't don't the Med Star books have to take place after this story arc if she is a Padawan, and if she's a Padawan, then goodbye to the Med Star Books because now she's gone from the Jedi Order. And according to Leland Chee, he does not see how there is any way she would ever reconcile and go back to the Jedi. So Wikipedia tossed that idea out because he's flat out said not gonna happen. Okay. Um, we also, though, uh, are are not told she's a Padawan in that story. So yes, if the Med Star Books are what gets her knighted and they must take place after this, then yes, it would knock out part of the MedStar books. But he has raised the simple point that there is nothing in these episodes claiming that she is not a knight or that says she's a Padawan. We haven't seen her in a while. She could very well have become a knight already thanks to the MedStar books and then be here on her own, no Luminara around, talking with Ahsoka, where they are still friends. They are not necessarily the same rank at this point. So that is a contradiction that may not be contradiction. So as long as the MedStar are switched a little bit earlier, which they were presumably going to be anyway um, by any fixes to the Clone Wars, not a big deal. The big deal is what to do about Reversal of Fortune and the other evasive action web strips. What do you do with her being alive for Order 66, killed by Order 66, and having a Padawan that is left behind? More than likely, what we'll probably wind up seeing is something with uh, kind of an even-peel type of solution, which is to say, just like they had to do with Coruscant Knights, that yes, there was a Lannic Jedi Master who was killed, but it wasn't actually even-peel. But yes, he was at one time a Master of Jax Pavan. They wor- found a way to work Coruscant Knights in with what happened to him back in the Citadel arc. Well, here they can very much say that, well, it was a different Jedi, not Barris, who was Zonder's Master, who gets killed during Order 66, and who winds up sending Xander off on his merry little way. They could change the character out uh, with a retcon, though, of course, they're not going to, like, reissue it or redo the story or anything like that. So that seems to be the easy solution for getting her in there. We joked a little bit about other possibilities. We kind of joked that, hey, maybe it was the brain worms. They just left her evil or something, and this really isn't <laughs> her fault. Um, but, of course, uh, anything like that, he said it does not they, they don't look towards any possibility of perhaps creating some kind of reason for her to have gone evil to work her back into the Jedi because he feels like that would invalidate Lucas's original um, uh, story intent of making her the bad guy here. The intention is not to have her uh, be somehow clouded of mind because of some outside force so that she could come back. The intent was that she's an example of a Jedi who became disillusioned because of what the Clone Wars was doing to the Jedi Order. And she acted on it in a way that was relatively negative, but still She acted on those uh, misgivings, perhaps. So for something that could have been a massive continuity error in, in huge, huge respect here, it seems like it's actually a relatively muted effect. As long as she's not a Padawan, the MedStar books can still happen before it. As long as they switch her out for some other character like they did with Evan Peel, everything in Reversal of Fortune and Evasive Action can just keep on going. And we would assume it's the same Jedi we see getting killed in the Order 66 stuff in the comic as opposed to uh, being her, just like in Reversal of Fortune. Uh, age-wise, they don't necessarily need to tweak much of anything. But to have it say, well, the retcon is that she somehow comes back to the Jedi Order? No, that's just flat out not going to happen um, from everything uh, that he's been able to indicate to me, I mean, he didn't flat out say that uh, Wikipedia is wrong, but then again, he didn't flat out reference Wikipedia at all. The idea simply was that's not Lucas's intent. That's not what we see happening anytime soon, and and that's another of those things where it's a uh, uh, at least part of that information was posted on his his Facebook page when someone was asking uh, about Wikipedia saying that she that she comes back. It's like no, it's it's. Don't expect it to happen, no.
1: Well, it's it's funny about the Lucas intent. Well, we don't want to go against what Lucas intended. I I do believe Lucas intended for her to be a Jedi in episode two, and she was a lot older than what he intended. That Getting back to that whole original vision BS, man. The man makes the stuff up as he goes, and he's no longer God, so let's stop treating him like it. (laughs) I, I, I get like that on occasion. But there's a retcon that we haven't thought about here, Nathan. George Sabath. He gets cloned at some point. The sample gets taken from him before the Clone Wars on outbound flight. At some point, he's cloned. When did this happen? When did they start cloning Jedi? They could easily have a secret program going on where they are cloning Jedi. We could find out that even Peel and maybe Barris and, you know, of course, uh, good old Sabath, were some of the candidates to be these clones and maybe we've seen some of their clones either die already or go crazy or, you know, th- I mean, they could easily write that in and, and, and make that the wild retcon there. And that could also explain when we start getting clone Jedi, you know, maybe this Barris was the younger clone of the older Barris who we see in all these other missions. And this one went nuts and went rogue. And therefore, uh, you know, she had to be put down. I mean, oh they're, good they're,
0: lord! <laughs> no, 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 no. That talk about tossing out Lucas's intent—whether we're talking original intent or simply intent in making the episode—you know that would open up a whole other can of worms when it comes to you know who was this character really? Um, and they've been—they've always kind of played fast and loose with the can you clone Jedi stuff or not? I mean, we've got the uh, the jor thing and the idea that clone Jedi sometimes go mad. We got the uh, cloned. Uh, Jedi with all kinds of issues with the Rakata technology and whatnot uh, in Cross Current and, uh, and Riptide and whatnot. Um, I like the fact, personally, when it comes to the clone Jedi, that in The Force Unleashed 2, uh, Ram Kota says you can't clone a Jedi when we find out thanks to The Force Unleashed 2 that yes, uh, at least if you watch all the little cinematics that you can open, yes, the Star Killer in The Force Unleashed 2 is a clone of the original Star Killer. It's not the same Star Killer. As back in The Force Unleashed 1, and I find it extra ironic that it's Rom Coda saying you can't do it, when Rom Coda's own former Padawan, uh, Fallon Gray, was cloned to make X1 and X2, the primary protagonist and antagonist, though I think I said those backwards for those two characters, um, in these Battlefront Elite Squadron video game, where it, See, where it turns out that these two both have, have Force Attunement. There's all kinds of different I, stories I truly...
1: about- Right, really quick on that with with Coda when he says that I truly truly think he only said that to make the clone of Star Killer believe that he was Star Killer to get that Star Killer to do what he wanted the original Starkiller to do I truly think that that's where they were going with that
0: Oh probably and I hope so um, because otherwise it, it causes big issues with you know what did he know and when did he know it so to speak um, But but I don't know I don't think that that is likely to be a solution either. Otherwise, they could say that for everything. Oh, the the Evan Peel that died, that was actually a clone of him. There's this other one that's still running around. It, it opens up way too many doors to cheapen a lot of the, the character-driven events that we see. I mean, for better or worse, this is what we've got here in this series for the characters. And in this case, you know, it served Ahsoka's storyline well. It would have been nice if she had been able to be friends with some other Jedi Padawan who was new to the series back in maybe the second season, and then have that be the character done here, but it wasn't. They made it so that she was friends with Barris, and lo and behold, now it's Barris they come around to that has to be the one to betray. We get an awesome ending, an amazing ending, really, to this series that opens a door of, well, Ahsoka's gone. Why does she not get killed in Order 66? As far as, she, as we know, why does she not show up in Revenge of the Sith? Well, it's been at least months, presumably, and she's not with the Jedi Order anymore. I mean, maybe, uh, you could say that Anakin's secret, uh, secret happiness of all is that while he did lose Padme, and while the Jedi Order in his mind did somehow betray the Republic and he was going to take them down, that Ahsoka was not caught in the crossfire. Someone he cares about is still alive out there somewhere. It would be interesting well, in to see the- a tale. It would be interesting to see a tale if at some point they decide. And please. Please don't let this be where Star Wars, the ongoing series, is going. Um, where he goes out there and is looking for an apprentice of his own, and rather than first going after Luke, when he doesn't know Luke is even in existence yet, maybe he might go after, say, Ahsoka, trying to find his old apprentice and lure her to the dark side uh, mm. to be, you know, here. I mean, she's got the reverse lightsaber grip like Starkiller does. I mean, that's that seems to be the trademark of many of Vader's apprentices now.
1: Well, and another aspect of it was it's one more reason why Anakin would have a hate on for the council. You know, they, in a sense, forced his Padawan out. Had they not been punks and did what Tarkin said and kicked her out of the order so she could have the trial, if they had just kept her in the order and they just supported her, she'd still be there.
0: And it's one more loss for him to suffer to make it so that he really, really, really cannot lose Padme. Uh, and go on, hence yeah. being able to turn to the dark side. I think this, uh, very much like what we saw with the uh, Revenge of the Sith novelization, helps give more weight to some of the decisions Anakin makes in Revenge of the Sith.
1: But well, ad- then, Another aspect, too, is when Barris gets taken away, we have a classic, it's a trap moment, where we hear Tim Curry as the new voice of Palpatine go, take her away. I just love that. It, it's one of those, ever since I've heard that, I keep playing that one, Speech of his over. Just take her away. <laughs> yeah,
0: but as as much as I like Tim Curry and other things, I'm a big fan of the old uh, Three Musketeers Disney movie. We you know with Kiefer Sutherland and Charlie Sheen. Yeah. And, you know, but um, no, I the first time I heard Tim Curry as Palpatine, we didn't know it was Tim Curry. It was one line that was inserted into the end of Revival, and it it stood out like a sore freaking thumb. And here he does not sound like we expect for Palpatine slash Sidious to sound. Uh, I'm very glad that Ian Abercrombie, before he passed away, was able to record enough that we got all but this episode's Sidious done so that he could still be playing the role even after he passed because Tim Curry as Palpatine really did not sound right to my ears. And I kind of hope that we don't get much of Sidious slash Palpatine in the, that bonus content that's coming unless... Those performances by Curry sound a little bit more in line with what we expect from Palpatine than what we got in this episode. This arcs, the last episode, it's, it's, I would say that Tim Curry's performance as Palpatine, while not horrific, is definitely a black mark on the episode because it does not fit with Some the Some people rest said of Pal-
1: he sounds more like Sidious than he does as Palpatine. But you know, I, I posed a question to the Beyonders on our Facebook page about this, about you know why not in this case get the original actor to come back and portray the voice of Palpatine, you know, and everybody was like, well, oh, it would it would cost more money, and someone on on our one of our Beyonders said it would cost more money to hire that actor than it would Tim Curry, another actor, like that makes no sense.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think it was just made for an odd an odd decision. I just wonder if they even asked McDermott about it, but. Uh, We're getting a little long on time here, so let's wrap this up by going back to uh, that image that was our big promo for this season uh, that was referenced earlier in the show. We've got the Who Will Fall Uh, poster, and in that poster, uh, which was also the one that was helping to announce the new morning time slot for these really, really dark, non-child-friendly episodes, we got a a smattering of characters who might have fallen this season. We got... Pre uh, who, of course, is dead now at the hands of Maul. Adigalia, dead now at the hands of Savage. we got Hondo Onaka, who manages to survive. We have Maul, who's at least been defeated and taken by Sidious, who knows what his fate will be. Although they really don't have to say anything, you just say, well, he got tired of him and killed him, and that would wrap that up pretty cleanly. Rex, who, of course, is still around. Savage Opress, who was killed by Sidious. We've got Ahsoka Tano, still around, but having left the Jedi Order as of that final episode. Imbo, who is still alive at this point, uh Asajj Ventress, who is still alive at this point, though not working with Dooku, and we got Satine, who of course is now dead at the hands of Maul. And I actually have to say, it's interesting the way that they left, I mean, it's kinda cool to see that, wow, a lot of them, they really did kinda foreshadow that they really were going to die. Very few of these actually are still around, or at least still around in their previous positions, but it's interesting that with both Ahsoka and Asajj, that last arc not only managed to sort of push them in those new directions, but it stripped them of their lightsabers. So Ahsoka now no longer has hers, but remember, neither does Asajj because Barriss had them. So we have these two female characters who are in a lot of ways sort of foils for each other. Asajj is kind of the, uh, you know, there but for the grace of God type version of Ahsoka in a lot of ways. Um, and both of them are now out there with their Force abilities, but without the lightsabers that they had used as their tools for so long. I thought that was an interesting parallel between those two, but I would never, never have imagined looking at that Who Will Fall uh, promo that the only ones who are left the way that they were when this season started would be Hondo, Rex, and Embo. Unless it was simply the fact that I thought that, you know, Embo was not a big enough character to even rate being on that image.
1: See Maul, him being in the hands of Sidious, I like that. You know, yeah, he could die, he could be imprisoned. The one I like to lean towards the most is him kind of going the route of uh, Darth Plagueis' museum, uh, kind of locked up as an experiment in the dark side. Uh, that to me, I think would be the most fitting use for Sidious to put Maul to. Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed where they put these characters. Um, you know, where we go from here is is a curious, curious state. You know, there, there's a lot of questions as to, you know, what's going to go on with these characters from this point. I mean, yeah, it's a great wrapping up point, but there's still questions, questions like, you know, where's, where's Rex? You know, what happened to Alpha? You know, where did those two tie in? How does that factor in? We, we did see Apo, who we know by episode three is going to basically be the new Rex. Uh, so it's, it's very curious to see where they go from this. And, you know, I mean, we don't even really know.
0: But thankfully, at least now, with only presumably two arcs, or at least two arcs left to show up as bonus content, wherever and however it does, at least now this opens up the door for Leland Chi and whomever else to start working on an official retooled timeline of the Clone Wars era. What fits? Where does it fit? Here's how this series is able to fit in with the previously existing continuity, and oh look, there's not as much that's being uh, tossed out as one might have. Expected At least that's my my hope. Part of me still wants them to simply say this is a different continuity, but I can't imagine them doing that now because I'm sure the work has already started. The retcons in some cases are already there, and we've already seen events from this series showing up in more mainstream EU stuff like The Essential Guide to Warfare, or The Essential Atlas and such, that have to almost retcon away those mentions in order to make that happen. But I don't envy Leland Chi the job of trying to fit all this stuff together, but I am excited for... The idea that hopefully that is a process that either has begun or is beginning now that the series is officially over. Let's just hope that it doesn't take us years to finally see what that retooled timeline is. Like it took us years to finally have a publicly released timeline of the episodes of the Clone Wars series. Which really, we don't even fully have yet. I mean, we sort of do, thanks to the uh, visual guide updated and expanded. But that's really only up through the end of last season or I mm-hmm. guess two seasons ago now, season four, most of the end of season four. Um, he's doing those blog entries over on the StarWars.com blog, but that's not through the end of the series yet, and it won't be for another couple of months that we'll wind up seeing the release of Jason Fry's episode guide book. So I guess in a sense, we still don't have a full episode chronology released, but at least we know what the chronology of it is, uh, even if there's not one that you know puts all the pieces together in one place in our hands. Just yet. I'm hoping for something uh, to wrap this all up and tie it all together within maybe the next year or so. Maybe that's a little too optimistic.
1: Hmm. I will say this, though, you know, George selling Star Wars and bowing out of the saga. He definitely with this series decided to uh, slam bask continuity. I mean, you know, at, at this point, we're trying to stay optimistic, but we could just as easily find that the EU could be dead. You know, come episode seven, and we could find that George's last act in Star Wars was to use this show to destroy continuity. How messed up would that be? that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films thank you for hanging around with us and sharing the fandom lastly though before we go we wanted to mention to you our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com Report, you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about You can explore more than 100,000 titles. You can jump right into a galaxy far, far away or explore any new genre without risk. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. In this digital age, if you're making the switch from the screen to the page, Audible just might be right for you.
0: And remember, if you're looking for oddball items, uh, Star Wars, comics, uh, uh, books, anything like that uh, from my collection or from my fiance's, collection. We have put up a new Amazon.com store. If you want to help support us there, it's Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Collectibles. That's L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you took the time to check it out.
1: Yes, be sure to check it out. You can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes and it can be found right on our Facebook page at SWBeyond Films or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. You can post comments to us about the show or ask us direct questions. We love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying may the force be with you.
0: And don't quote us the odds that they'll put those other two story arcs on the season five Blu-rays so we don't have to pay extra for them sometime down the line.
1: Or that Leland can make it all work. All of it. Every last bit. <laughs> That's right, well way to start it. Yeah. Maybe we should just kill
0: ourselves. (laughs) Don't worry, kids. You're not really traumatized. He wasn't Kermit the Frog, he was just some little.
1: Episodes are also. Really?